This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Today is our March edition of Incentives and Instincts, a monthly series in which I speak with economist and friend Bryce Ward about some of the broader issues facing our society. And since it's Pledge Week here at Montana Public Radio, we're going to talk today about the value of public media to a democratic society. What are the benefits? What does it do for us? And why should we support it? Bryce, how are you today? I'm good. Starting to feel a little bit like spring? A little bit? Starting to feel a little bit like spring. Uh, You know, I saw a statistic out of England yesterday, which suggests that... So England's literally randomly testing people, so they actually know the real prevalence of COVID in our society. a novel idea. You know, COVID is now less deadly than the flu in England. Wow. Well, that seems like a milestone. That's a big milestone. Two years, almost to the day. Uh, Very good. So, uh, unfortunately, now we have a war to worry about, but, uh, you know... We'll focus on it. We take the good with the bad, (laughs) right? Right. We just move from crisis to crisis. Yeah, there's that war to deal with, but um, yeah, we can celebrate the good when we have it and not worry too much about the bad. That's the right attitude, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So, yeah, let's start with this conversation about public media. First, by defining it, what is public media? I mean, you framed this question of what's the market failure that that creates a need for a public media? Yeah, I mean, you know, so we have media, right? And Mm -hmm. so we can think about why does media exist? And, you know, there's all sorts of private benefits and there's also collective benefits of media. And then there's markets for the various things that media provides. And so the question is, is why don't we just let the private market handle all of it, right? And so where are the failures? And so I think to understand public media, we kind of have to go through the history. Yeah, right? a little bit. You know, we kind of have to, but we have to go back. Media, if we focus on the information part of media, mm-hmm. right? So media exists because people want certain information about what's happening in the world and what's happening around them. And they want somebody to collect it and disseminate it in a way that makes it easier for them to get. Right? Sure. So, because if we go back in time, you know, a long, long time ago, the only way for information to spread was basically word of mouth. Right. Right. And then we, okay, we start writing stuff down and we have like scrolls or something, or maybe we have a messenger who sends a letter at great cost. <laughs> yes. Right. And then but, the know, printing press. And then we and get, some, you know, printing yeah. press and we get to newspapers. Right. And then we add radio and television. But, you know, essentially what we have in that, in that world is media is exists to, it collects, we have a group of people whose job it is, is to go out and pull on the various threads of information that people want, report out, put them into some package that then gets delivered, Mm -hmm. you know, but what gets put into that package, there was a gatekeeping function. Yeah. You know, so there was a lot of gatekeeping because it wasn't unlimited space. You had to pick and choose what got space. And let's let's pick that apart a little bit. I mean, the gatekeeping can take the form of, I mean, two prominent mechanisms. The first is let's edit the content to appeal to our subscribers like the paying customers, let's create content that they want to read. And we'll talk further about some, if you take that model to its logical extension, what happens. And then we add in this advertising model, right? Where, you know, advertisers are basically the customers and subscribers are meant to think they're the customers, but they're not actually, it's the advertiser. So two mechanisms for funding private media, both have, um, have potential for market failure. That's right. And so into that world, we get public media, right? Mm-hmm. So what are the what are the market failures in that world? You have a little bit of, okay, when I create information, it's hard for me to capture all the value of it. 
right? And this is a bigger, much, much bigger problem today, sure. right? So a reporter goes out, reports a piece. Today, like, I can read everything that's in that piece without ever clicking on the r- article or even the news site that created it. Right. Right? A Twitter thread or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, something else, you know, or somebody could just tell me. Right. right? Which, which was the market failure 50 years ago, mm-hmm. right? Was I read the newspaper article and then I told all of my family members or my neighbor, you know, they didn't have to subscribe to the newspaper because I told them all. I yeah. could hear from other people. So this is always the problem. This is the fundamental market failure in information markets, which is information is a public good. Right. Right. And a public good in economics has a very specific meaning, right? It means that it's non-rival, which means that if I consume it, you can also consume it. Okay. Right. So an apple is rivalrous, right? I eat the apple, you eat yeah, the it's apple. Yeah, it's gone. It's yeah. gone, right? But information, we can both enjoy the information at the same time. And it's non-excludable, right? That means that once I put the information out there, I can't stop you from consuming it. Okay. Right? Now- we can try and put subscription things. And so I can actually click on some articles and read them without subscribing to a particular website. So that's excludable. So excludable is kind of like ownership, yeah. right? Like if, if I buy the car, I can prevent other people from driving it. That's right. And like, you know, and if I put up a paywall, I can prevent you from reading the article. Right. But usually there's A, ways around the paywall, or mm-hmm. B, I just find a friend who has the subscription and say, hey, what's in the store? Yeah, right? exactly. Once you break the paywall, you, you can know, do all sorts of things right. with it. So there's limited excludability, okay. right? So in that case, we are, we're in a world where the market isn't going to provide the efficient level of media service, sure, right? And so if we say, okay, well, let's jump forward to today. You know, we don't need to worry as much about, well, why was public media created 50 years ago, but what's the role of public media today? So what's the role that we want out of a media organization today, right? So first, there's still the traditional function of go find information that isn't widely available, right? That's what reporting is, true reporting. It's Mm -hmm. hard, it's expensive. Mm -hmm. Go find information that people don't know, right? And might be even trying to be kept hidden from us, but we have a, you know, this is the standard government corruption, you know, story. The other thing which still exists, um, even in a world of massive amounts of information, is we want to reduce the cost of finding the information, yes. right? They collect a bunch of information in one place, and I'm like, what oh, do I need to know? I want to know something about Missoula. I just know I can go read a Missoula news source, right? Because they're going to have the key pieces of information about Missoula, yeah. right? So they'll yeah. collect it. Or, you know, this happens a lot. Like when I'm filling out my ballot, right? And I want to know about the candidates. Well, it's like, oh, I know that there's going to be an interview in this website or that website. So I go and I type, you know, Missoulian candidate X or whatever sure. it is, right? And you can get, read about it. So, you know, there's that collection of information without having to just kind of comb the whole information, right? So there still is this curation function, but it's less important than it was 40, 50 years ago because there's a ton of other places to find it and we have Google and other Right, there's efficient ways to sort through there's it. There's other ways to sort through information. A new one or a, one that's kind of come back, right? So back when the gatekeeper was there, the gatekeeper, you know, and this was what journalism training was. There was standards. And yeah, you had to, yeah. you know, meet certain editorial standards sure. and had to have certain amount of sourcing and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, view from nowhere, all right? that stuff. And so when you read the newspaper, listened to the radio, or watched the TV, you had some expectation of quality, Mm -hmm. right? Now, it's not to say that media doesn't ever get things wrong, but there was a process that was supposed to keep filter out 
Yeah, the best version you of know, the truth, right? Yeah, yeah, we're supposed to get to, yeah, some we're supposed to filter out some of the garbage and get to, you know. But now a much larger role of media is tamping, because we don't have that gatekeeping, you know, we essentially have widespread information. Anybody can put information out, right? So mm-hmm. I can just get on Twitter and put out information that I know, or Facebook, or what anybody can now collect and disseminate information. Yeah, we can all sort of play the role of reporter. That's right. So we are awash in information. Yep. But... We now have this misinformation issue, which has always been there. People have always been misinformed, right? But we are much more aware of the misinformation that's spreading. And so there's a role for media or, you know, high quality media. If if we're designing what's the socially optimal media infrastructure is you now have to have an arm of people whose job it is is to tamp down on misinformation, you know, say, nope, that's not true. And here's why, or, you know, so there's, there's, I mean, instead of just collecting information and putting it out, there's also now what used to be that the gatekeeper role is now an ex post function. Okay. Right? The yep. information yep. is out there. Yep. And now we tell you that it's wrong. Instead of before we just said, well, we couldn't verify that, you know, and it just didn't make it in. Sure. Right? Which probably doesn't work quite as well. And we'll talk about some of the reasons for that. Yeah. <laughs> but so, but again, we're just trying to describe what's the ideal media infrastructure. And then can we get what we need to fund it through the private market, right? Mm-hmm. So, and the last thing that kind of goes into media that still exists is agenda setting. So, you know, and this is where pe- media, people don't like the media is they don't sometimes like the agenda that they set, Okay. right? Um, but this really fascinating experiment was done like five years ago where these researchers convinced a bunch of media outlets to randomly run stories. Interesting. Right? And so there were weeks where they were like, okay, we want you to run this story you know, they, you know, they kind of evergreen stories. They weren't like, you know, they're about things like immigration or okay. whatever it was. Yep, yep. Right? And then they, the researchers tracked what was, you know, what was happening on social media, mm-hmm. you know, and said, okay, well, in weeks where we were running a story on this topic, how much did mentions of this topic rise within various social media spheres or I can't remember where else they were looking, right? And they saw big effects, Right. So the media still does set agenda. Drives the conversation. It drives the conversation. Right. So this is what media does in today's world, in my opinion. Right. right? Is right. it's you know, it's essentially there's still the research function. Mm-hmm. Find an information that isn't widely available and, you know, bring it into the discourse. Create a clearinghouse for information that's available, quality control, the information that's circulating, and then you still have the power and authority to sure. kind of drive agenda. Yeah, you set the guardrails in a way. We'll be back to my conversation with Bryce Ward after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with Bryce Ward about the value of public media. Yeah. So given those things, you know, they can exist through markets, but like, let's talk about in each of those instances, where do we find a market failure that leads to a need for some outside of the market mechanism? Okay. So where does the money come to do this stuff? And then right. the traditional model, you know, and it still exists, you know, where does the, you know, the private model you already mentioned them, right? It's monetization of eyeballs, really. Yeah, there's subscription revenue. Or ears in this case, you know, folks. There's subscription revenue and then there's advertising revenue, mm-hmm. right? And so those things, you know, bring in money. Now, the challenge was historically, I had to turn to a media source for lots of information. Yes. 
Like if I wanted to know the weather, right? So when I was a kid. You mean a single source for weather, yeah, for sports, yeah, for local like, news, national news, all of it. What's the weather going to be today? Oh, I know it's, you know, 7.06. Let me turn on the Today Show. Right. And that's when they're going to do the weather report. And then they'll go to the local weather oh, guy. Right, right. Right. Or I opened up the newspaper because it was right there, literally on the top corner of the newspaper. And I knew that if I flipped it one page in was the more detailed sure. forecast. Or I know if I turned on the radio at this particular minute... Right, you had this very key, very basic, very important information. Yeah. Right. All I can still do all of that today, but I can also just follow the National Weather Service on Twitter. Exactly. Right. Or pull up the weather app on your on, phone. Pull up or whatever the weather it is. app on my phone, and so we've broken a lot of, you know, what drove those eyeballs uh, and subscribers to those sources. We've now created more efficient substitutes. Yes. Right. Yeah, the weather app is the perfect example, but so is the sports app. And, you know, if I want to find a score, it used to be I had to go to the newspaper and flip it open and find it or whatever it is. Now I just, boop, find the app, go to the scores, and, you know, it's all there, right? So I can customize it so that my team, you know. So we've taken a bunch of the information functions that used to drive some of the revenue, but we're low cost to produce. And they're gone. And, you know, so we've taken the high margin, some high margin parts and we've taken them away, right? So now there's less money left to support the other functions that we're trying to get out of it. So obviously that's that's a problem. Great, there's still value being created by, you know, tons of value being created by the reporting of an important news story, but I frequently never even click on it. Yeah, right. it often doesn't get read. It's not- The know. information got out there. Oh yeah, the headline gets out. The head shapes the conversation, but you, it's harder to monetize. Well, and that's the other thing, right? So it used to be I had to subscribe to the newspaper and I, what would I do? I still do this with the physical paper that I get at my house. I skim headlines, but now I can skim headlines on Twitter. Sure, yeah. I'm, again, I might follow a news source that gives me all of its various headlines- but I'm never clicking, you know, Twitter's getting the money for that, not the news source. Yeah, so there's a couple failures in there. It's like you, you, the, the outlet that created that content that made the investment in doing that reporting and editorial function, they're not able to capture the same amount of revenue from that contribution as they were previously. And there's another problem too in that by the time it gets to you or what version you consume of it, whether it's a headline on Twitter or a, or a you know, a summary on some other news outlet or some aggregated source, you're not getting the full story. You're not reading the full story. You're not getting that reporter's version of events as he or she reported it. So there's there's not necessarily a misinformation effect happening because um, none of this information is perfect, but it is like this elaborate game of, of telephone where, you know, you get further from source, you, you get a distorted view. Well, and worse, and this isn't a market failure per se from a private perspective, but it is a social failure, mm-hmm. which is we know that people – click on stories that confirm what they want to think. That's right. Confirmation bias. Absolutely. So we know that part of what we have is an issue in private media is, you know, so whenever you see a headline or a story in a news news organization that you don't like, that makes you mad. Why are they even writing about this, right? The reason they're writing about this is because somebody else wants to read it, Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, what we've done, unfortunately, is it's one thing to have one set of sources and they're sometimes they're telling me things I like and sometimes I don't. But what we increasingly do because of private market incentives is we diverge our media. We have sets of media that skew one way or another. Now, most people still consume media from the middle, but 
a thicker and thicker tail is able to be supported that basically thrives on basically figuring out what its audience wants to hear and just keep providing. Well, and you layer on these artificial intelligence driven algorithms in Facebook, in Twitter that fuel that, exacerbate it. I mean, their job is to keep you engaged and the way to keep you engaged is to serve you things that you already agree with and that inflame those areas of agreement. Not just that you agree with, that, that make you angry at somebody Exactly, else, yeah, right? the algorithm of rage, exactly. You know, and so, you know, so this is, it's not a market failure per se, but you could make an argument for public media. It's a system failure. Right, is to say, oh, we need a public gatekeeping source that uses kind of some publicly agreed upon standard to be the referee. Yeah, uh, and we see that need in government, right? Yeah. Like whether it's the Congressional Budget Office or right. Bureau of Labor Statistics. And, and, and the, those institutions have sort of been uh, undermined in recent years. I mean, there, there hasn't been this collective set of facts that folks can agree on. And so what we're suggest suggesting here is that public media can serve that function. In theory, it could serve the referee function, sure. right? As long as it has public support for the referee. You know, the problem is, is that you need public support and the public doesn't want to do this and this is the whole problem, right? You know, you need like... Well, we want everybody listening to do it. This is Pledge Week, so yeah, let's not... That's right. No, no. I think know, they have potential. But, you know, but the, there's, there is a theoretical refereeing role that you could argue that the private market may inefficiently provide yeah. and therefore requires the intervention of the government, assuming we can get the will of the governed to provide that support and that we can create a process that then engenders the cycle of continuing that support. Mm -hmm. It's not a market failure in the allocation of resources per se, sure. but it's addressing a problem that is created, a negative externality that is created by private media markets you know, in terms of people isolating themselves into information silos with real consequences. In fact, literally just this morning, I was seeing the correlation between your preferred cable media site and vaccination status oh, wow. and concerns yep. about COVID. And, you know, I mean, you just see these wildly divergent trends. Now, it's not, there's a chicken and egg problem. Did the media drive that or did the media respond to the people's sure. underlying interests, right? right? So, you know, that's that's a harder question. But- it becomes a problem when in some of these fights, we need a referee, mm -hmm. right? We mm -hmm. need somebody who a fair-minded person can turn to and know, okay, I hear this fight between these people. What's the referee saying? And, you know, and we can trust that. And, or, you know, if I'm at the margin, you know, again, it's a marginal thing. You're just trying to kind of keep it from getting too far pushed into these into silos the yeah. by keeping those who are trying to be open and fair-minded to give them an outlet that they can trust and turn to. Now, I'm not saying that there's no none of those outlets exist currently. I'm saying that the, the issue we have is that we're certainly seeing some worrying trends. And, you know, it was one thing to worry about it when, when the news that we're fighting about was not really that important. Right. But a pandemic which has killed millions of people. Yeah, we need good information. Like the fact that we've been in a misinformation cycle with respect to something that is so fundamental, people's lives are at stake. It's a real concern. It's a real concern that we've created social conditions under which these media organizations thrive. And in particular, some of them thrive. Their business, entire business model is feeding 
these particular divisions and keeping people trapped in cycles of misinformation that's to their own detriment. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit more about some of these business models. I mean, one of the trends we've seen over the you know last decade or so is kind of the consolidation of local media into conglomerates like Sinclair and, and others, for example. You know, a lot of private equity involved in some of these ownership mechanisms as well. That has some some dire consequences. Well, depending on your point of view, I, I think they're dire. But talk about some of the consequences for this media consolidation at the local level. Okay, so a paper came out recently which looked at this over the past. I mean, they went through like 2019, basically the 20 years of the 21st century, uh-huh. and looked at you know what happens to uh, the local media market when private equity comes in. Mm-hmm. Um, the good news is is that you're less likely to see the newspaper close entirely. That's right. Newspapers um, survive. The newspapers survive. So private equity does figure out how to keep the thing that they bought alive. The business keeps running. The bad news is is that it comes at the expense of an enormous cut in staffing, uh, a change in the co- focus and coverage of what is provided, mm-hmm. and then there are consequences. You actually see declines in voter turnout. So reversing some of the gains that previous studies have shown about what happens when you add a newspaper, which is, oh, Voter turnout goes up. Civic Uh, engagement increases. Civic engagement increases. Corruption goes down. Odd finding is that places without a local media source actually pay higher rates in bond markets. For municipal bonds. For municipal bonds. It becomes more expensive for those municipalities to fund themselves. Is that just because the public isn't watching? Is that the mechanism? I mean, I think, you know, I think it's lazier. I think the idea is is that the investors are more concerned. Oh, that it's not a healthfully functioning. They just don't have information. Right, they're like, I don't have enough information to know if this government is okay, so just m- less information, more risk they assign right. to yeah. that. So trade. I just, I have less information. I'm just going to assign more risk to it, and Got I'm going to demand a higher interest rate. Okay, yeah, uh, to invest in your community. Yeah, that's not good. All right, and so you know, and the last thing that we care about local media for is it, it has to do with identity salience. We've talked about this mm-hmm. in a couple of previous yep, episodes. This is right? a big issue. Is you know one of the theoretical and actually empirical advantages of you know having local media or consuming local media is it increases the salience of your local identity that, you know, your identity as a Missoulian or Montanan or whatever it is and, you know, and helps tamp down on some of the other identities that one might uh, engage in and particularly in an environment where there's a lot of negative polarization and uh, identity around national political identities. That's really destructive, Mm -hmm. right? Because now you're basically fighting with your neighbors uh, because of their national political leanings and turning it into an identity, right? So I am a Republican or I am a Democrat, you know, as opposed to what you really should be, which is I'm somebody who regularly votes for right. a Democrat That's or regularly votes for, you know, but it's not, it's, it's not an identity, right? The, you know, like, I don't know why, why we've allowed politics to become such an important part of many people's identities. It's always been some to some degree, mm-hmm. but like, you know, I think the, the the decline in split ticket voting and, you know, the, the fact that we just have so much more straight, you know, some of that has to do with ideological alignment, some other more, sub, you know, kind of fundamental forces. But I do fear that we've allowed political identity to become an identity that's like the thing that's forefront in our brains. Well, and all these things, all these factors we've been talking about coalesce to sort of create incentives toward that. It's if I have less information about my local community, my local politicians, my local policymakers, if I'm less engaged at the local level because there's not information, 
and all I'm exposed to is the nationalized information, it becomes much easier to sort of acquire that national party identified identity. Well, and the other thing about local issues is that they don't they don't map onto national polity, no, political identity. Not clearly, right? You know, like housing, like yeah, the people. That's a that splits party coalitions. Yeah, you know, school stuff splits party coalitions. You know, so focusing on local it allows me to start seeing these people who are quote on the other side. Right. You know, as allies. Yeah. right? they're key allies and important in in fights that actually matter to my life mm-hmm. much more than most of the fights that happen in Washington. And but the fact that we it, when that gets depressed or goes away when we're less aware of it or you know or you know local politics becomes a circus for the most extreme voices in the community which is I fear what happens in our public under our public meeting statutes we we've you know we've let this train kind of roll too far and it's to our detriment you know in our own communities because we're not getting the information we need we're not participating at a level that allows our policymakers you know the space and grace to you know, operate in the best interest of the community and not in the interest of the loudest voices in the community. Sure. We'll be back to my conversation with Bryce Ward after this short break. Hi, this is Anya Jabor, Regents Professor of History at the University of Montana, and you are listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with Bryce Ward about the value of public media. So we've kind of done a lot of time setting up the problem here. Let's talk in our remaining time about how public media was conceived as a solution to these problems and you know how it exists today. I mean, it, it's it was formed, you know, in the in, in the United States, sort of modeled after the BBC model from England, and in the years since. There has been some pressure, you know, declining public funding and more reliance on sponsorship, revenue, membership, hence things like the pledge drive that we're in right now. Um, talk about kind of the role that the public media we, we do have has played over the last decade or so. Public media and nonprofit media, you know, the, the idea is you convince people that even though I'm not going to click on your news story or listen to every broadcast, I still support the value that we've already talked about. Yes, right? the function the, of this the, gatekeeper. The function of collecting information that I wouldn't otherwise have and setting an agenda within the community and reminding us of our local issues, mm-hmm. you know, and trying to do so in a way that is public-minded as opposed to profit-minded, right? So, you know, that's the idea is generous citizens make donations and in a more wide functioning way we would just say the taxpayer does right the taxpayer says oh this is important i recognize that functioning as a democracy requires that there's people that are out there collecting information and making sure that it's widely available but it's very difficult for those people to capture the value of their efforts so we need to collectively fund them. Yeah, and I think one way to think about it too is that you know more and more in paid media and in, in private media there are there there are becoming you know cable bundles are being uh, you know disaggregated and all these things it, we're coming into a mode of I'm only going to pay for what I consume. And as a consumer, I mean that's kind of where you want to be in many ways. Although we're sort of seeing that all the subscriptions I have add up to probably more than I was paying for cable ahead of time, but we'll set that aside. But anyway, this sort of only pay for what you use sounds very appealing 
to a customer. Yet in terms of public media, like I don't listen to all the programming on Montana Public Radio, but I understand that it provides great benefit to a wide variety of constituents. And I want that benefit to be out there. I understand that it's a public good and support. It, it provides a mechanism to support a public good that doesn't exist on the private side. Yeah, no, and that's the key, right, is, is you know, the market incentive. If I just pay for what I consume, it's too I, – I consume all the information, yeah. right? Like all the well-reported stories that, you know, whatever, the New York Times or the Washington Post or whatever, you know, the, if it's relevant to the things that I care about, I probably know about it. Mm-hmm. But maybe 15% of the time did I actually click on the original story. So only way to get the information that we all want, right, to help us understand who these politicians are and what decisions decisions they're making in a way that's understandable to lay people, right? Because, you know, look, a lot of times if you want, you can just go straight to the government and download the, you know, original source documents and read the bill or whatever it is. But – a, there's, that's all, there's, there's cost in that, mm-hmm. right? So the idea of media is that these are skilled people who collect the information, digest it, and regurgitate it in a form that it's easy for me to get the key points of. You know, you need somebody who's sitting there collecting, digesting, and disseminating. And while the private market will fund some level of that, right? It does fund some level of mm-hmm. that. Uh, the concern, particularly at the local level, is that it is well below the optimal level. The level that, if we were saying, from the you know maximizing social welfare, what would what would that what would the you know benevolent social planner what would they choose? I don't think they would choose the local media environment that exists in many smaller communities. You know, and you know, I mean, in the larger communities in Montana, you know, you've got at least something. But as you move out, it goes to zero pretty quickly. Yes. Those places need information too. Every place needs information upon about what's happening in their community. And in some places, yeah, maybe it's small enough that everybody knows each other and you can you can thrive in a, you know, a pre-media information environment because everything just spreads word of mouth. But, you know, a lot of people live in communities where, you know, you need that research function, the collection and then the dissemination uh, to make it work. Otherwise, people just go about their lives uninformed. Yeah. And, um, and there's consequences to that. There are. And, and let's maybe sharpen this up in our remaining minutes in terms of kind of the one of the overall goals of this Incentives and Instincts series is to kind of understand and maybe connect some of the forces and trends that are pulling our society apart. Public media is one of those things that can bring us together. The benefits of public media are a more engaged populace, higher voter turnout, better information about local governance, all these sorts of things that could be the basis, as you said before, for making more salient our local community identity. And I think that's a lot of what we try to do here at Montana Public Radio. Yeah, and you know, and then you know, there's another part of this which is outside of media, which is also just getting people to individually understand and recognize that they need to avoid only consuming media that, that they agree with confirms the agenda they want to set and the you know the information that they want to hear mm-hmm. because that's when public media becomes controversial and it doesn't need to be, right? It becomes controversial because some people don't like the information that 
public media provides, in which case now public media is now just is, is not being allowed to push itself into the role of that referee uh, that I would like to see it be, but it can only get there if, A, the public media is, you know, using a process that people can agree on is the right process to set the agenda and report the information. But also if people aren't just immediately, if it is doing that, if there's groups of people that are just dismissing it because it's, quote, biased against them, you know, then it's just another, it's another tool. It's, you know, it's it's useful to have nonprofit media or public media because it's doing reporting and everybody benefits from that. Mm-hmm. But uh, we're not getting that additional benefit of, of having a, a, a well-functioning down the middle or expected down the middle uh, reporting, which is you yeah, know. we all we all want to work the refs, right? We it's all our natural to inclination to work the refs, but you know our sports and our activities and our media will not function properly if we don't have refs. We have to agree that refs are important, and we want the best ones we can get. That's right, you know, and it's yes, everybody hates referees, but like at the end of the day, you do need some level of referee, and the question is, is can we? use the fact that we have public media to try and assert some amount of we're going to be a referee and that's our job and we're going to, you know, because we're not beholden to a private pop profit motive, you know, we don't have to, we can, we can at least avoid some of the taint that comes from, well, if you do, if you, if you call this wrong, then, you know, people are going to get mad at you and then you lose your profits. Right. Indeed. Bryce, that feels like a good place to land the ship. Uh, folks, thanks for tuning in this week. Thanks for all you do to support Montana Public Radio and public media in general. And uh, Bryce, thank you. And we'll, we'll see you a month down the road. All right. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A new angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. AJ Williams is our producer. BTO, Jeff Amet, and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott. And Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.